If a generation of low-level warfare has proved anything, it's you can't end violent extremism with matching violence. A task force convened by the U.S. Institute of Peace has come up with a whole new recommended framework for dealing with extremism. Joining me in studio with the details, Nancy Lindborg, president of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Ms. Lindborg, good to have you in. Good morning, Tom. Good to be with you. Let's begin at the very beginning and just tell us a little bit about the U.S. Institute of Peace. I think people sometimes mistakenly think it's State Department because it's next door. It's the weird building before you cross the river into Virginia. But give us the background on USIP. Yes, we have that beautiful swoopy roof that you see when you come across the bridge. And U.S. Institute of Peace was founded by Congress 35 years ago as an independent, national, nonpartisan institute with a mission of preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict around the world. So we are independent of any administration, but we are funded directly by Congress. Okay, well, that's good to understand. And Congress charged you with convening a task force to look at ways of countering extremism. Was this a bipartisan request? Absolutely. We are bipartisan by charter. Our board is half Republican, half Democrat, uh, confirmed by the Senate. And one of the things that we do for Congress is provide a, a platform for people to come together from across different areas of expertise, from across political lines to grapple with some of the toughest problems. We, for example, were host of the Iraq Study Group, which you may remember. Um, and so similarly, Congress charged us about a year ago with coming up with a comprehensive plan for addressing the roots of extremism in fragile states with a focus on the Sahel, the Horn, and the Middle East. Sure. So in some ways, this is a long-term outgrowth of 9-11 in many ways, or maybe even the Beirut bombing, you could say, back in, when was that, in the 1980s? Absolutely. And in fact, the co-chairs of our task force were the co-chairs of the 9-11 commission report, Governor Tom Kane and Congressman Lee Hamilton. Wow. So you really went to the old hands at this to uh, to try to take a fresh look at something they looked at very carefully, but from a whole new angle. They were very passionate about taking on this assignment. They see it very much as an arc of the work they did with the 9-11 commission. And one of the three primary recommendations they made at the time, but one that was never pursued, which is that the United States needs a preventive strategy for uh, dealing with extremists overseas. Yeah, it says one of their main bullet points is to adopt a new policy framework that recognizes extremism as a primarily political and ideological problem. To me, that says primarily not an economic problem, which is what often you hear, well, those people are poor, so they have no other recourse than to throw bombs. But it sounds like something new has been proposed here or discovered here? Yes. Well, you you know, we brought together people who primarily had served in various capacities in state, uh, USAID, uh, DOD, various parts of the intelligence sector. We also did extensive consultations and drew on the best learnings and evidence of really the past decade and a half. And what became apparent is that although it looks different in every place, that the key drivers or the key conditions that give root and enable extremism to rise um, are a blend of things. But chief among them is a sense of injustice, a sense of exclusion, a sense that people don't have any opportunities uh, to to participate in the life of their of their community. And Clearly, economics are a piece of that, but it's, it's, it's rarely the sole or primary driver. 
And I wonder how Osama bin Laden and the terrorists of 9-11 figured into that framework since Osama bin Laden was wealthy and the people that did the bombing directly, the 11 or 12 of them that didn't survive it themselves, had come from wealthy backgrounds in Saudi Arabia, a country which, yes, has huge degrees of injustice, but they were not at the receiving end of it. That's right. And what the report talks about, and we have both a final report as well as an interim report that came out actually on 9-11, both of which are on our website, and we invite people to go look at them. But what what both reports talk about is the fact that um, there there it's very difficult to combat the ideology. But what the report looks at is how do we better address the conditions of states that are fragile, because those are the conditions that enable extremism to take root, to gather recruits, to to hold territory. Um, and what we see is that arc of fragile states across the Middle East and Africa is where we are seeing extremists continue to flourish and proliferate. But it's not about only combating the ideology. It's about the conditions of fragility. So the axis of evil has been replaced or could be with the arc of fragile or vulnerable states. (laughs) Well, it it certainly puts uh, poor governance uh, more squarely in the bullseye. We're speaking with Nancy Lindborg. She's president of the U.S. Institute of Peace. And Just back up for a moment. Tell us more about the methodology of how you came up with the framework. Well, as I said there, we first of all put together a a really top-notch bipartisan task force that uh, was able to bring their expertise and their experiences and then extensively consulted both with a senior study group that further complemented the expertise and did a lot of um, consultations with people at state, with USAID, with DOD, the intelligence services, um, and beyond, and also with various um, both leaders and community members from fragile states themselves. Um, one of the things I would note is is some of the work very much built on efforts that were already in play inside the federal government, something called the Stabilization Assistance Review that state aid and DOD have done, um, has some of the similar tracks of effort uh, that we were able to key off of. Interesting. So now this report then is, in a sense, a collection of the learnings of all the people who have been dealing with this, whether from the military or the civilian side, for going on 20 years. And the CT world, the counterterrorism world, absolutely. I mean, I think of it as uh, a distillation of the best lessons and evidence basis. Uh, of what we have learned, because we know that 17 years later, $5.9 trillion later, that while we've kept the homeland safe, which is, of course, paramount, uh, extremists abroad have proliferated. And so it is absolutely critical that we rethink our strategies and move from a very reactive mode where we are responding after a crisis or after extremist groups have held territory to moving more upstream and looking more at prevention, which is always the hardest thing to do. Sure, and it takes the most patience in some ways. What are the top-line recommendations for what Congress might be able to do to enable this approach? There are really three big top lines, and the first is that the federal government adopt across the interagency a shared framework, a shared understanding that this is the problem that we're tackling, and we put our collective capabilities in an aligned fashion against that. 
The second is to adopt a package of ideas that enable these federal agencies, particularly state and USAID, to operate more effectively with longer-term funding, more flexibility, uh, the ability to craft more complementary plans. And the third is that uh, we create a fund that we can share with our international partners so that we burden share uh, and that it works in partnership with the fragile states themselves. Yeah, you really can't expect changes in those countries without some help from people in those countries. And the report goes into a set of principles that are, again, derived from a lot of the lessons of the past decade and a half. And it says, you know, ultimately, uh, we can't affect change from the outside. We, th- these, these will not be problems solved by kinetic action. The core of fragility is that you have a broken social contract between a government and its people. So the change has to come from within. So it's a matter of where are the partners with whom we can work, either at the government level, subnational, or community level, and how can we have a program that is mutually designed. So keying off of some of the lessons of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, through this international fund, create compacts in partnership with the country, the country partner, the fragile state, that enables you to do longer-term, more iterative programming that starts to move you towards a less fragile situation. And we know that moving out of fragility, moving out of repeated cycles of conflict can be generational. We don't have that kind of strategic patience in the way we tackle these problems today. And a final point, several secretaries of defense going back as far as Bob Gates had mentioned, gosh, it would be better if state and defense worked more closely with one another. And I think it was Bob Gates that said, we really need to add more resources to the State Department which means we don't have to do as much work kinetically, as you mentioned, in the Defense Department. This seems to further that idea. It does. And there's, you know, Secretary Gates was joined by Secretary Mattis and, you know, I think uh, a number of the combatant commanders, all of who, all of them are are very clear because they're in the front lines that they're not going to fight their way, our way, out of this problem. I was in Iraq last spring and I met with a tribal sheikh who leaned over the table and said to me, said, you know, you Americans have have fought and won three wars in Iraq. When are you going to help us win the peace? And we have a, a habit of throwing a lot of reaction, a lot of military, humanitarian, peacekeeping resources at a crisis, but then stripping out. And what this report says is that these are long-term problems that need a sustained response. It's not necessarily more money, but it's taking a different approach that hopefully will help us have better results 17 years from now than we have from 17 years ago. Any congressional reaction so far? The Hill reaction has been very positive. The report was launched on the Hill last week of February, and a week later, both the House and Senate dropped bills bipartisan co-sponsors that have recommendations that very much mirror what's in the task force report. Nancy Lindborg is president of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. We'll post a link to more information to the report and to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand and on your device at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. 
Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte. But for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month. And you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details.